Welcome to Homeschool Your Way, the upbeat, open-minded podcast that informs and affirms your choices about your kids' education. We'll provide a buffet of ideas to inspire you to homeschool your way, because your way is the best way. All of the content on the Homeschool Your Way podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical or legal advice. The views expressed by the hosts or guests of the show are not necessarily endorsed by Bookshark. Welcome to Homeschool Your Way. I'm your host, Jana Cook, and Bookshark's community manager. In today's episode, I am joined by Nate Norlander. He is the co-founder of The Nomadic Professor. We're going to be talking about their history curriculum, what makes it unique, and really honing in on their newest course, which is media literacy and how you can apply that to your homeschool curriculum. Nate, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Well, I think that a lot of people may want to know, first off, what is The Nomadic Professor? So The Nomadic Professor is a company with a professor who is nomadic. (laughs) So we started working together in 2020, building online history curricula for virtual schools and for homeschool families. The Nomadic Professor himself started a YouTube channel back in 2016, And he's been on the road on and off, mostly on since then, recording on location, mini lessons and mini lectures all over the world. So you can see lots of um, free public content on his YouTube channel. He'll be in South America, North America, Asia, the Middle East, Africa. He's currently based in uh, Cairo, Egypt, filming for our upcoming uh, world courses. What we've done together as the company, The Nomadic Professor, is take this on-location element and kind of flesh out a whole history curricula around the on-location concept. So all of our content, whether it's American history or something else, features the professor on location all over the world. So he travels, writes, and records. And then I'm a high school teacher as opposed to a college professor. My job is to kind of provide some support and structure and scaffolding to the professor's text and video, and then to do some supplementary training in how to do research, uh, how to write research papers, how to take notes, um, and a lot of the literacy elements that I assume we'll get deeper into throughout the conversation. And you yourself are a world traveler. Yeah, so not nearly as extensive as uh, my partner, but um, I lived in China a a couple of different times, but for about four or five years total. Most recently, we left Beijing, you know, kind of at the start or middle of COVID. I was there um, at a private international school from 2018 to 2020, and we were kind of looking at our next steps, whether we wanted to stay in China or come back and do this full-time. And then COVID hit. Um, It was kind of just a whisper and a rumor and not much else in December and January of 2019 and 2020. And then it sort of exploded and uh, we left China in... Family left around February. I left a month or two later and uh, just taught online for you know the rest of that school year from the U.S. and then never went back. So I've been doing uh, an amount professor full time since then. 
All right. So fun fact, the nomadic professor himself is a homeschool dad, correct? He is. He has four uh, kids that he is homeschooling or has homeschooled. He has one who's in college now and three at home with him in Cairo. I think that as a homeschool parent myself, thinking about not only world traveling, but trying to create content and then teach and be in a different uh, country, I w- I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it. So I'm amazed that he is able to put all this together. Um, and then when they're on location, are they nomadic or are they actually like when he's in Cairo right now, is he at a place and he's there, it's their home base for a while? So they have a home base where, well, they, they have done stretches where they didn't have a home base, where they were just on the road, you know, hotels or campsites or KOAs or, or you know, whatever, Airbnbs. So they have done stretches of fully nomadic, um, but they also do a kind of hybrid. Right now they have a home base in Cairo, so they have an apartment, they have, you know, community and and all of that. They're sort of connected where they are, but then the they'll travel, you know, to different places depending on the home base um, and what needs to be recorded. Sometimes it'll just be, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Jackson. Sometimes it'll just be William, Dr. Jackson. Um, and sometimes he will take a kid with him or his whole family with him. Just depends on the day and the trip and what else is going on. Right now, they're all in Greece. He's filming lots of uh, content for World and Western Civ. And so they're they're in Greece for about a month. Um, so, you know, it's kind of just depends on the day and the time and what needs to happen. But lots of travel for him. And then uh, brings the family depending on the the trip. What an amazing experience for his children as they are uh, just getting to be world travelers and learning on on the ground of where the, the the content that's being filmed, right? Like as a as a homeschooler myself way back in the day and a homeschool parent, I mean ultimately that would be like the the way to do it. If you could just take your child to uh, China and talk about, you know, the ancient civilization and where it started. So I love that this content is available for uh, parents so who aren't able to do something like that, but then they can tap in and see what he has created in, in this digital day and age. Yeah, that's part of the idea is sort of we are in a time where technology and the structure of our educational options allows us to kind of break out of the brick and mortar classroom. So there are a lot of valuable elements to that classroom, like community and peer feedback and face-to-face instruction that are valuable. And we want to incorporate those as much as we can into our online classrooms. But it also comes with advantages, like um, being able to be in a different place, uh, being able to learn in a different context and setting and culture. And so I know they find that immensely valuable, um, bringing the kids with them having them learn on the ground and meshing them in a different place. Um, and this that's something we hear about a lot at conventions, families who sort of see this model and either they're living it themselves, like, hey, we are nomadic as well. We're on the road. This is kind of our ideal break out of the classroom um, thing. Uh, or it's something that they don't do, but have an ambition or, or plan to do in the future. And so, yeah, it, I think it's a nice... Um, kind of opportunity in this moment that uh, lots of people see the advantages of. And and we hope that comes through in the, you know, the way we've tried to structure our our classroom and our courses to take advantage of those out of the classroom elements. 
I would add maybe a C for parents like me who have no desire to do that, but we're really grateful that it's available. Yeah, there you go. There's a little bit for everyone. Um, his lifestyle is intense. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, filming everywhere from Ecuador to all the states in the U.S. to Kazakhstan to Tibet to Tokyo. I mean, there are some hairy travel stories and some kind of shoestring travel stories that not everyone would want to go through. But, um, you know, that's part of the fun and and uh, part of the advantage, I guess, of bringing the videos to the classroom. I agree. So speaking of technology, one thing that you are currently working on is um, media literacy. And so we've talked uh, just personally about how to make sure that our children who are being homeschooled um, are able to navigate. Well, and let's be honest, for adults in general, are able to navigate all the information that is out there uh, available to us via the Internet. Before, you know, it used to be a joke when I was younger, like, well, if it's online, it must be true. And and now it's almost the opposite. It, it To me, it's almost like, well, if it's online, it must be false. But then there really is no other way to get information unless it's firsthand. And if we go back to firsthand information, that's really going to limit us as to what we're exposed to and or what we believe, right? Because we are globally minded now more than ever, which I particularly think is a great thing. But that makes it really hard to believe uh, a lot going on in Africa. You know, like you hear one story that's like, oh, it's taken care of. It's not that big a deal. Or you don't hear it at all. But then I have a friend who actually has family there. So she's constantly giving us updates that she's getting. And it sounds horrific. And I wonder, why don't most of us know about what's going on in this particular area across the world? You know, so building a curricula that would help parents walk their students and again, educate themselves on how to navigate and have a um, criteria for what our children take in information wise and how they, how they can glean what is truthful. Yeah. So you bring attention to an important um, paradox is not the right word, but it's not that intuitive that having all of the information available would suddenly make you feel like none of the information is reliable. It's like this democratization of information that is this seems to kind of go hand in hand with an American ideal, you know, free information, give people the information and let them make their decision. On the one hand, you feel like that would make you secure, that would inform you, that would arm you against people who are trying to deceive you. But in reality, um, what turns out to happen is that it's easy to fall into this kind of radical skepticism where you you discover you've been deceived or you discover people with bad intent or you discover there's so much information you can't make sense of it and then you don't trust anybody uh, and then you become like a, a source unto yourself which I think is is another pitfall to be avoided as opposed to a and a, a desirable outcome from this uh, accessibility of information. So we don't want to lose the, the good parts of having information available and accessible. Um, and we don't want to uh, not have information available and accessible. So we're kind of stuck in this place where what do we do? What is the best alternative? Because 
We didn't like not having information and we don't like having too much information. You also brought attention to the, the way media acts as a filter for what you hear and what you don't hear. So that's a unique phenomenon in and of itself because what feels urgent, what feels critical, what feels like it's worth your attention in a given moment, what stories have gained traction as opposed to, you know, and gained traction for reasons that are not always related to their significance or their importance. It's related to their ability to grab your attention. So if there's a story in, you mentioned Africa or the Middle East or China that is critical, but is not attention getting, the world has kind of moved on. It's a story that loses attention because the media is acting as a filter Again, not for stories that are significant, but for stories that are attention getting. And so that's another element is if I care about current events, if I'm trying to stay on top of the news, how do I figure out what's going on that's not being filtered through a media environment whose bottom line is, you know, eyeballs on the screen, clicks on the page, time on the website. All of these things are not necessarily incentivizing media companies to present the same information they would if their goal was a kind of classic traditional journalistic standard. So we have <clears throat> narratives that get emphasized for reasons and based on incentives that are not in line with our own necessarily. So all of this leads to a place where we don't know who to trust. There's too much information. We can't make sense of it all. <clears throat> we feel like uh, high school, middle school even, are ideal places for students to be educated for this environment. You also mentioned this is not just for adolescents. This is a skill that clearly adults are not managing well, have not been trained in. Because look at the media environment. It's been created by adults. The comments sections, the reactions to news stories, the um, hostility on social media channels. These are adults who are engaging in this internet behavior. So it's not like adults are super literate and kids need us to guide them, right? We are not literate in this information landscape, this technology age. So media literacy is a skill that this generation is going to have to learn and bring with them into adulthood. Uh, you know, we would like to teach adults as well, but our, our target in this is the students and whatever teachers or instructors or parents are uh, managing them, working with them. And hopefully those parents, teachers, instructors are of the mindset of lifelong learning and will recognize that it's not what it used to be. And I think that's maybe the hardest part. It, we're starting to recognize as, as adults that there it is unfortunately typically money driven right you talked about clicks and eyeballs and comments and ads all of those things in this day and age the bottom line is dollars and so like you had said well of course this story that i was talking about well why is that going to get dollars maybe in their algorithms that brings sadness to our world. And so if we don't want, we have enough sadness, we don't need to hear more sadness about things that maybe we feel we can't do anything about anyway. So let's just avoid that whole topic in general, because sad emotions don't necessarily equate 
dollar bills in our society. Sure, you can do it yourself. You can outline lesson plans every Sunday night. You can splice together mapping assignments and hands-on crafts that match your history lessons. You can pre-read dozens of books to find the best ones and then pick out vocabulary words and brainstorm discussion questions. You can look for the best science activities and then get all the supplies you'll need to do the experiments. You are more than capable of DIY homeschool. But do you really want to do all that? I mean, there's no need unless you just really love designing curriculum. Head to bookshark.com slash catalog to see the fully planned open and go options available to you. Parents love Bookshark because the heavy lifting has already been done for you. And then you get to do the fun parts. Read alouds on the couch, heart-to-heart discussions, kitchen experiments that make them fall in love with science. Melissa Stower says, the teacher's guide you guys supply is a lifesaver. Wonderfully put together, couldn't imagine doing this without your guides. At Little House, Big Imagination says, your science program is awesome. My daughter loves science now, such great projects. And my favorite part is that you provide almost everything we need for it. At GreenBJJ says, another year of homeschooling with Bookshark underway. This reading-centric curriculum has been a staple in our school process since go. Secular and flexible, Bookshark curriculum comes with a 36-week planner to help guide daily instruction. This curriculum doesn't just make homeschool easy, it makes it rewarding. Check out the Bookshark catalog and create your best homeschool year yet. Get yours at bookshark.com slash catalog. Yeah. And and there's an interesting thing going on here as well, where no one person can be aware of or pay attention to everything that's going on in the world. So the crisis in this or that country at a given moment may not be something I I have to pay attention to because I have to function in my world and our worlds don't often overlap. So we have this, we have to decide what is relevant and not relevant in a kind of heartless who cares about them way, but relevant in a, I need to function, my family needs to function, my community needs to function way. Technology, available information sort of uh, tricks us into thinking, not tricks, it's not that deliberate, but it sort of tends to make us think that we need to know everything all the time, and we don't. There are things happening in Russia or you know, France or Mexico that I don't need to know about. I just can't pay attention to everything. So on the one hand, there's that. And then on the other hand, there is of the things I'm going to pay attention to, um, which ones matter and how can I get to the sources that are authoritative or honest, or uh, they don't have their incentives align with my values or, you know, all of these different things. And I don't want to be totally cynical and suggest that all popular media outlets are really just greedy money grubbers who who will squeeze you for an extra penny. Like to some extent, some of this is not really um, intentional. People are acting within the constraints where they find themselves. And so 
you have to make a company survive. It can't, it's not a charitable institution. So it has to make money in order to make money. It has to kind of follow trends and be visible and be public. So within this environment where people or where um, companies have various incentives, there are honest actors who are just trying to survive and not deceive people, but they need their business to stay afloat. And so they, they, they can't just operate on purely altruistic impulses. So it's a very muddy story. And I think there are greedy people. And I think there are honest people acting within a very difficult system with incentives that don't align with their values or with the values they would have if money were not a question. Um, but in the end, the, the, the kind of bottom line is the same. What should we pay attention to? What sources should we pay attention to? Uh, and how can we make sense of the stories that matter, the stories that don't, the information that is relevant, the information that is not, and the sources that are honest and the sources that aren't? So Nate, that was a that was a lot of information. And for those who are listening or watching, you know, and they themselves are struggling with just trying to navigate all the information that we have accessible to us. We're trying to raise contributing members of society. And so we're, to me, I'll speak personally. Sometimes I feel like I am the blind leading the blind when it comes to how do I tell my kids? Like, okay, that's an interesting story in the news, but could there be another side? And and how could we find another side? Or could there be a, a you know opposition or a different voice that we could look for to balance out and see? Okay, what is there more to the story? Right? Is there is there um, another another source where we can um, kind of compare? Compare and contrast, I think, is 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 so important. I feel like as an adult in this day and age, we have very little time or maybe even desire to go. Well, wait a second. That was one source. Is there another source? You know, in the times that I do take to do that, I feel like they're all regurgitating the same thing. And so then I'm like, okay, well, I guess if three or four outlets are saying the same thing, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is a pretty vetted story and this is what had happened. Like they gave me the facts. So how could, how does your course um, kind of walk alongside a parent or a teacher and, and help them feel like it's not the blind leading the blind? Okay, good. So you gave an important example. We need to, in history, we call it corroboration. You get one story. Uh, now you need to corroborate that with 10 other sources or 50 other sources. You know, whether you're writing, it depends on whether you're writing a book or an article or just trying to figure out what's going on in the news. But the bottom line is you have to find multiple sources and kind of get an understanding of the lay of the land uh, get an understanding of a range of opinions, and then it's easier to make a judgment like this one is convincing for these reasons and not for these reasons. And it's easier to kind of find where you land once you kind of understand the landscape because you've looked at a broad range of sources. Now, that's an, an, a critical skill. In our history classes, we actually teach that that's the last skill. That's not the first skill we practice when we are mining a source. So let me take a step back and and kind of I'll offer a couple of metaphors maybe that will um, illustrate uh, the way I am picturing media literacy. So there are two and they kind of have different emphases. The first one is like an iceberg where the very top of the iceberg, and this is common, people use icebergs for lots of different, uh, in lots of different contexts, but 
the very top of the iceberg, we have kind of these the low-hanging fruit, the skills of, say, corroboration um, or lateral reading or, uh, you know, going back to the original source that reported on the story as opposed to the first source. Uh, but underneath the surface of all of that, we have so much going on that uh, we are unaware of that is acting on the stories that make it to the top in ways we should be aware of if we are going to be fully literate. And that's just the tip of the iceberg on what Nate's going to be sharing with us about media literacy. Tune in next week to hear the rest of my conversation with Nate from The Nomadic Professor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homeschool Your Way, a podcast by Bookshark. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening now so you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you have questions you'd like the hosts to answer or have any feedback about the podcast, please visit bookshark.com podcast to leave your comments. Or you can simply email podcast at bookshark.com. Thank you.